0: Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. On today's show, we are all about commanding views of the River Thames because we're paying a visit to London's Southbank Centre. Speaking of commanding views on the world, this summer the venue is abuzz with literary goings-on, from poetry readings, author Q&As, celebrations for new book releases and intimate and less-so conversations with all manner of booktastic folk. The South Bank will play host to the likes of literary big hitters Zadie Smith and Colson Whitehead, as well as politicians like Yanis Varoufakis and Theresa May. Plus, the South Bank will be shining a light on the creation of this year's most talked-about TV show in a particular exclusive conversation today we'll be catching up with the south bank Centre's ted hodgkinson to find out how you program such a slew of hot ticket talks and we'll tap into the minds of two writers taking part the journalist and broadcaster kate mollison and the poet lydia dimkovska for a little taste of their fascinating conversations to come First up, I was joined in the studio by Head of Literature and Spoken Word at the South Bank Centre, Ted Hodgkinson, to hear how he goes about programming the events and what themes he thinks are top of this summer's literary agenda. Ted, it's wonderful to have you back on The Culture Show. It has been a while. You're kind of back with a bang and the Literature Festival, I suppose, which sort of takes place in and out and throughout the summer is always a must-see for people. What were some of the things that you were keen to sort of book first, I suppose, as part of this summer's offering? So one of the first things on my
1: wish list, which I'm really pleased that we're doing, is we're launching Zadie Smith's upcoming novel, Fraud, which Mm. is her first foray into historical fiction. And I had the great joy and privilege of interviewing Zadie recently, and it's really clearly a big departure for her. She's, she's in the same, as she put it, same postcode as she often writes about, but she's right. going back in time a few centuries, and it's going to be really interesting to hear her reflect on that experience and sort of delving into Wilsdon in a different time continuum. Yeah. As well. So I was really excited about that. I mean, we've got some really big hitters in the season across the summer. Linton Kwesi-Johnson, Colson Whitehead, who I, as you might remember, I'm a big fan of and yeah. I'm really delighted he's yeah. in the programme. Julian Bonds. We've got some really interesting pairings as well. Yomi Adagoke with Bernadine Everisto talking about Yomi's debut novel, *The List*, which is very zeitgeist and explores sort of Me Too related subjects. There's a lot of really big-hitting kind of non-fiction. I've got everything from Naomi Klein to Yanis Varoufakis, an Intelligent Square debate on AI. got to say I'm really excited about the fact that we're doing an event with Jesse Armstrong and four of the other key writers from Succession. If you're like me and a massive fan of the show, it's really going to be an exciting opportunity to look inside the writers' room and hear that discussion going on and hear all the alternative names and swear,
0: all of the sort of fantastical swearing and all of the brainstorming that goes on behind the scenes. Just in that sort of cross-section there you've given us, there's such a lot going on. As you say, there's sort of everything from economics, non-fiction, historical fiction. I think everyone's very excited for this new Zadie Smith novel. Julian Barnes kind of talking about his career in literature, I suppose, as well. The pairing thing is really interesting. How have you decided to do that? Do the writers... Do you have to put them together? Do you have to matchmake or are they kind of friends? Do they kind of move in the same circles? Because that's quite a tough thing to get. One thing to get a literature critic or someone or yourself, obviously, to do a Q&A with someone on stage. It's another thing getting a writer on writer action yeah. going isn't
1: it? It's one of the great pleasures of programming actually and there is a certain kind of Emma Woodhousery that happens <laughs> with this kind of thing yep. you know and I think actually with Yomi and Bernadine that was a case of we were looking for someone who we knew was a fan of her work and champion of her work and obviously Bernadine is an immense writer in her own right so there's a there's often a, a spark or a seed for the event that's one particular author and then it's thinking how will this sensibility refract through someone else's style yeah. and thinking So, Guy Giranantne, who you might remember, he's the author of Our Mad and Furious City, has come back with his second novel, Mr. Mr. and he's gonna be in conversation with Stephen Burrow, and that's again a a discussion between two writers who have interesting artistic sensibilities that chime and bounce off each other. But yeah, I think it's one of the really exciting and rewarding things that we get to do is pairing people up, thinking about chemistry on stage, and also sometimes thinking about who's gonna introduce just that little soup song of tension and friction to sort of someone out and particularly with things like non-fictional debates around you know AI whatever it may be that's obviously an important ingredient moving away from the kind of literary end of things more towards having real debates that go beyond the sort of Twitter spats or whatever that are really illuminating and insightful and I think in order to achieve that you really need people who are prepared to be challenged and put up a bit of resistance.
0: And and in terms of the programming of it use the word Zeitgeist to describe a novel and I wonder how if simply in picking the authors of the most interesting books that are coming out this year you naturally get a cross section of public debate and of what's going on in the literary world, or whether you have to kind of consciously program that. Whether you can sort of cherry pick your favourite books of the year and it just so happens that you get a bit of economics, a bit of fiction, a bit of historical fiction, this, that, and the other. Or yeah, whether it's a more of an effortful process, I wonder. It's a really
1: nice question. I suppose I should say absolutely first off that I have a fantastic team who I work with. So it's certainly not just about me picking my favourites. Although as I betrayed at the beginning, I have some <laughs> some particular predilections and interests in certain writers, of course. But it is always a group discussion about which authors and which books we programme. I do think there is a sort of natural bubbling up to the surface of certain issues that are very much of the moment. And particularly because we do a lot of memoir, and particularly with people who are involved in the kind of political realm. Mm -hmm. There are people who are going to be talking about current issues through just talking about their lives and the issues they've been engaged within. But I would say the other part of your question is how much do we effortfully foreground particular issues? And actually, we have a new partnership with Intelligence Squared. And one of the real upsides of this and one of the reasons we wanted to do it was because we wanted to highlight and investigate particular issues because they are so of the moment. So I mentioned the AI debate that we're doing with Intelligent Scared towards the end of the summer and I don't need to tell you, obviously, it's a very live issue and particularly within the arts, it's a very live I'm issue. I'm not really presenting
0: this programme. <laughs> yeah, <was> so it's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's a robot.
1: It's a very, com- <laughs> it's a very convincing uh, avatar I'm talking to. <laughs> but yeah, I that's an example of a subject where we knew we wanted to address that. Yes, there are some books, that, of course, many, that are out on this subject, but almost irrelevant of what had been published. We knew that was something that we wanted to have a discussion about because South Bank Centre it is and and should be a space for public debate about issues that get very heated, but we want to introduce a bit of light as well as heat. And I think that there is a real value in having those discussions in a physical setting, because often when they play out, as we've seen, often these things get very polarised and fractious, whereas actually I think one of the values of an in-person debate is you can hear a human being saying, this is what I genuinely believe, and they're often very expert and worth listening to.
0: Well, it's nice that those issues and these hot topics come back to the world of literature, come back to the printed word as well. I think that's the thing. It's not You're not setting up two kind of pugilists in a boxing ring at the South Bank Centre. You're setting up perhaps two differing, perhaps two similar viewpoints, perhaps, but it's always coming back to the books. The fact that these people are authors and they've thought through things and this is a considered take rather than... A radio argument, I suppose.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I'm a big believer in investigating things through writing and in prose, whether it's non-fiction or fiction, and I think in either case I think what you find in a really interesting and illuminating book is that the pluralities of a given subject, the, the differences within it, the tensions within it, all emerge, and so Whether it's Naomi Klein writing about doppelgangers and online personalities, which is, you know, a book in which she's exploring kind of shadow selves and Mm. what it means to be a person online, you know, and that has lots of novelistic traits as a book, or... Zadie Smith or Colson Whitehead or Julian Barnes exploring the shadowy aspects of human nature that, you know, exist within us. And I think I do tend to think that writers who are really engaged and insightful tend to speak to current issues and concerns kind of naturally through being these kind of really engaged, almost sort of lidless eyes that are just taking in the world and putting it into words and articulating it in ways that we recognise a shared experience within that, but it's very distinctively through their voice and sensibility.
0: And just finally, how much do you have to take into account people's box office kind of appeal? Because you've got people who have imperfect track records. <laughs> I mean, Naomi Klein is always an interesting name to have on the list. Mm-hmm. Theresa May, Yanis Varoufakis himself. You know, these people have imperfect careers and will be asked, I'm sure, about those as well. This makes for good box office just as much as Zadie Smith coming and Talking about a probably wonderful new book, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. I mean, that
0: kind of part of the
1: it is absolutely yeah. and I suppose there's the I suppose the, 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 <laughs> the grubby side of it in a way but one of the things that we often have to think carefully about is which space the writers appear in obviously South Bank Centre is a uh, it's 18 acres of space across the South Bank there's the Royal Festival Hall which is two and a half thousand seats there's the Queen Elizabeth Hall which is just shy of a thousand mm. then you've got a range of spaces from the Purcell Room across to smaller kind of uh, pavilion spaces in South Bank so it's not one size fits all for sure you have to be very careful about where you pitch someone. It's interesting, I I often see really strong turnouts for people, you mentioned Yanis Varoufakis who is in the Royal Festival Hall and we do often have senior politicians in the RFH and of course that's going to produce mixed reactions sometimes because of the nature of politics. But I think back to the point I was making about Southbank being a public forum, I think part of the value of that is there being an opportunity to have a live discussion with people in power and to have that direct unmediated opportunity to hear from people. And I think, you know, our roots are very much in being that kind of public space within London, within the UK to do that. So yes, I mean box office, we should probably have a discussion about that off air, but (laughs) yes, that's (laughs) certainly a factor.
0: Yeah, no, it's good stuff and it does feel really live and as I say bring it all always back to the printed the printed page it's a it's a wonderful celebration of it once again Ted, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Ted Hodgkinson there. And now to two of the writers themselves. Lydia Dimkovska is a Macedonian-Slovenian poet, novelist and translator. She's published six books of poetry and three novels in her native Macedonian. And Kate Mollison is a journalist and broadcaster, often heard on the airwaves of BBC Radio 3. Her new book, Sound Within Sound, is an exhilarating story of the composers who challenged the conventional world of classical music in the 20th century. Century. Kate and Lydia join me on the line now. Lovely to have you both on the programme. Lydia, I'd like to start with you, and you're part of Poetry International Festival at the South Bank Centre. I'd love to ask you about how you mix your poetry and your activism and whether they are separate parts of the same poet's brain.
2: So don't try to be an activist, you know. For me, the writing is not a concept, it is a kind of inner dimension, inner necessity, actually. So I consider that with the poets, uh, right, with everything we possess in our being, our fears, our attitudes, knowledge, consideration, emotions, of course. So the content of our soul and spirit more or less visibly comes to the surface of our poetry. And in my case, is that actually like this. So, you know, in this way, I think that I'm an activist in poetry when my poetry actually speaks about the human rights, about uh, things important for our society and for our world, for the justice, for the freedom, for everything that is important for me as a human being. But more concretely, I'm an activist connected with poetry as an editor. Actually, in Slovenia, where I live, I edited two anthologies of writing of minorities and immigrants who live in Slovenia and they write in other languages than Slovenian language. So it's a kind of a historical event in Slovenia because it was the first anthology of this kind of literature and I always actually fight for the writers who live in a society, in a country, but they choose their own mother tongue for writing. So in a way, they actually don't belong to the national literature and you know the national literature today is quite old-fashioned term i think because we live in a century and in a world full of refugees of nomadism i think now it is time to speak about transnational literature and i find myself in these topics
0: So you don't have a poetry hat and an activism hat. They are one and the same thing, and they they rest with equal comfort on your head, I suppose. And this anthology that you put together in Slovenia, Lydia, presumably is shining a light on voices that might not have been heard, I suppose.
2: Yes, they don't exist in a way, you know, because there are writers who actually left their countries very early and they don't belong to the countries from where they came. But they also don't belong to the Slovenian literature because they write in other languages than Slovenian language. So they are nowhere. And uh, it is a pity for me, actually, and for the readers not to hear these voices, not to read these writers.
0: This echoes perhaps something of the spirit of your book, Kate, Sound Within Sound, which shines a fascinating light, I'd say, on some sort of musical radicals and the, the unheard about and uncared for as well. Could you give us a little bit of an idea of the kind of drive of the book when you happened upon the idea to, to yeah, shine a light on these previously sort of dark corners of musical history?
3: Yeah, sure. And do you know what? Something that Lydia just said almost summed it up exactly, which is that it's a pity not to hear these voices and in my case to hear the music of these composers. And that's really it. I mean, it's what it comes down to is we, the listeners, are missing out if... um, we draw the borders too narrowly around what counts as classical music and terminology is really shifting all the time. It's really malleable. So what I've realized, having you know gone through really conventional classical music education and been a music journalist myself, and now I work for BBC Radio 3, is that there's a real importance to kind of who gets in and who's kept out, and who's the gatekeeper, and whose voices we elevate to certain stages, and who's given funding, who's given access to the infrastructure around certain types to music. Um, these things really do matter. And the more I looked into it, the more I realised there are so many fantastic composers around the world whose music just isn't being performed regularly and whose music is not reaching certain stages and certain years, mine included. So it was a real voyage of discovery for me, which was fantastic. I had an incredible time researching this book because, you know, I allowed myself permission to just phone up the relevant people in the Philippines, in Brazil, in Mexico. I allowed myself the opportunity to go travel to St. Petersburg to travel back down the apartment of an incredible woman who lived and worked there under the Soviet regime. So it was a chance for me to pursue names that until that point I'd only really seen mentioned in footnotes or even not at all. These are names that are left out of standard classical music histories. And I suppose my book is provocational. I'm not trying to create a new canon, but I am suggesting that those history books should be prized open a bit and maybe a bit looser in terms of yeah, who's allowed in.
0: I'm guessing that the gatekeeping around classical music, well, the the gates are high and fairly traditional looking. Your book has been reviewed super well. The word radical has often been applied to it. Did the act of writing it feel like you were pushing against an open door or a closed door, I wonder, Kate, with the reception that you got from the people that you interviewed, who seemed largely, some of the people that you obviously met face to face, seemed overjoyed by you writing about them and interviewing them.
3: Yeah, really interesting question. Definitely, it was an open door. Uh, as I said, those phone calls I made, those trips I made around the world, people were overjoyed. And you know, these are not forgotten composers or undiscovered composers. I think that's really important. In the Philippines, Jose Maceda, who I devote a chapter to, is very well known. He's he's famous. He's sort of a national institution. It's just that we here in the UK or in the West in general. Haven't bothered to do the research and to listen more widely. So it's not that these people don't have research ransoms. So I was phoning up people who have spent a lifetime championing these figures and feeling frustrated that their parts of the world have not been represented properly in standard music. Histories. So they were really, really pleased to get on board with the project. And then I suppose the other side of your question is how the book's been received here overwhelmingly positively. And I think that was partly to do with timing. As I was writing, I was super aware that the big conversations were shifting rather fast because I was kind of starting this book in 2020 against the backdrop of the Black Lives Matter protest really getting underway. And so I think that the kind of headline attitudes towards diversity and towards shifting the narrative and decolonizing curriculums and these sorts of things that maybe were more marginal as conversations actually kind of really took the main stage in a way that I found really helpful because I felt like I didn't quite need to make that argument and I could start from a slightly further starting point and get down to the nuance which is surely the more interesting bit.
0: That door seems like it it opened as well, right? That people are more receptive to this, people have more open ears to anything that sits in this activism pillar or anything that's described as radical, which might have had people running for the hills, people, <laughs> now, people now much more into, I suppose. And Lydia, I wanted to ask you about that. Again, this sort of shining a light on unheard voices. Just simply the idea of, for example, going back to your Slovenian example, giving people a voice... Does that feel like a radical act? You don't necessarily need to nudge them to write or to say anything that is particularly thundering. But simply the act of giving them a voice seems like a radical thing.
2: In my opinion, I think that uh, all the artists, not only poets and uh, and writers in general, have become today more conscious about the problems in our world and radically conscious. We actually watch the same news. We are hurt by the same events in the world, by the same injustice. We cry about the same victims in Ukrainian war. We are worried about our uh, planet and our nature. So we each other very well now, in a way, in this globalized world. As you said, actually, to put the voices that are not very heard in the society, maybe in the first plan and I try to do that. There are many literary events connected now with Ukrainian war. We always read poetry in support of Ukrainian war, but also when in society something is wrong with a populist leader, for example, or there are protests, demonstrations, we also do these literary readings. to change the world, because we know that we cannot change really the world, but at least to improve the world we live in. And it is very important. It is very important to include people, to include all these minorities, not only national minorities, but, you know, the LGBT community, the women, absolutely, anyone who is not really safe and secure in our world. I think that we have to take our voice and to give to them.
0: Thanks, Lydia. Um, Kate, I wanted to come back to you and talk about the sort of rules of engagement for writing a book like Sound Within Sound. Did you have kind of hard and fast rules for writing about music? I mean, you, you describe your meetings with these musicians and composers and their work itself in an incredibly kind of rich way. How long did it take you to kind of get your tone of voice for the book?
3: Ah, uh, um.
0: Because it's different to the broadcast. Sure. You're a wonderful broadcaster yeah. on Radio Three, oh, but it's a different you. it's a different sort of kettle of fish somehow.
3: <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I definitely wanted it to feel personal and conversational. And actually that was something that I thought through because it's not the standard authoritative, supposedly objective narrative voice that you might get in a standard history book. And I thought it was important to get away from that because I think We need to acknowledge that history is subjective and it is personal and that allowing our emotional perspectives in is okay and inevitable. And to be transparent about that seemed to be a kind of good progressive way of writing a history book. You know, I wanted to uh, in a way show my workings and admit that I was discovering a lot of this music for the first time as well myself. I wanted to definitely credit the people around the world who were doing the introducing of these figures to me. You know, in a way, it, it was a kind of acknowledging the collective in the writing. And I think histories could do well to go in that direction. So I suppose I was putting myself out on a limb there. It was interesting talking to a lot of publishers and um, before I decided to, uh, to, to work with Faber on this book. And a lot of the editors I was meeting were saying, put yourself into this book, you know, make it a voyage of discovery. And I did question whether that's something that gets told to youngish women, who are writing factual books whether we we have to be emotional and subjective in a way that men aren't but then I thought well actually maybe that's all right maybe we embrace that and a lot of this music will be very unfamiliar to readers and maybe difficult, maybe outside of the comfort zone, that's okay. I think that kind of lending a hand to the reader, in the same way that on Radio 3 hopefully we lend a hand to the listener, and going along with them into the unfamiliar territory, That's, I think that's a kind of useful and welcoming way in to, to, to sounds that are new and that are sometimes abrasive, sometimes violent, sometimes very slow, You know, sometimes need a lot of trust to sink into. So I suppose that's what was behind my choice of voice but it's an interesting question.
0: We should mention a couple of the composers you visited. José Macheda, <laughs> some of this music is just phenomenal, it's phenomenal sounding I mean as in terms of in your description of it. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of his oeuvre and what you found when you, when you spoke to him?
3: Well alas I didn't speak to him because he's, he's no longer with us but I'd spoke to people who knew him very well Um, and worked with him and knew his family well and who still work with his archive and have been involved in staging his work. So I got as close as I could without the guy himself. And in fact, I I, I mean, an example of the willingness that people were up for sending me unpublished, unbroadcast, hours-long interviews with him that they've kind of had on tapes since the 90s. And they thought, oh, you might find this useful. And oh, my goodness, I did. So Jose Macedo is a Filipino composer who uh, was a child prodigy as a pianist. He came to Europe. He studied in Paris. He went to the States. But increasingly, he got interested in what classical music might mean to his... Experience as a Filipino person. He went back to the Philippines and started working as an ethnomusicologist in the 50s and 60s, sort of kind of very early on in that field. And he went out all across Asia and elsewhere, Africa, South America, recording traditional sounds that were sort of dying out. And he tried to find a way of writing modern music that made sense in Asia. And he wanted to sort of telescope village rituals into modern settings. And he was using the new technology of the day or technology in general. He wrote these huge mass participatory pieces, sometimes for 100 cassette tapes. And the piece would be performed by the audience. You hold the cassette tape in your hand and you do choreographed movements. And it's those movements and those individual cassette players that are forming the piece. But my favorite one is, I think, probably the biggest piece of avant-garde music that has ever, ever been written and staged. And it's not just a dream because this actually happened in Manila in 1974 on New Year's Day between 6 and 7pm in the evening. The only broadcast that was available on any radio station, because every radio station in the city took part in this broadcast, was this piece called "Ugnayan" by Jose Maceda. Each radio station plays a different part, so that the way it works is that everybody goes outside with a transistor radio, you all tune into a different station, and then you walk around. So everybody's experience of the piece is different depending on who you're standing next to. And it becomes this huge... Swarm of sound. He wanted to sort of replicate the type of organic sounds that you might get in the jungle when trees are swaying or insects are swarming. And so that's what he was doing, but with literally millions of people on the streets of Manila, all of them holding these radios.
0: It's an amazing piece of public art. Sounds in- just incredible, kind of mad and so far, sort of far ahead of its time, I suppose.
3: Absolutely. I am trying. I am trying to convince various institutions that we need to stage this work and all of them. Sort of look awed and daunted at the idea. But it's going to happen. We've got to do it. We've got to do it.
0: That was Kate Mollison and Lydia Dimkovska. And you can find details of their events and the entire literature summer season programme at southbankcentre.co.uk. And that is it for this week. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chung and Steph also edits the show. And special thanks to Mariella Bevan for helping edit this particular episode. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>